So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to do a little bit of scripture reading, and then uh, Rob's going to start with a song. So he's not going to come up here right away. We're going to play. He's going to play a song, um, and then he'll be up. So would you bow your heads in prayer with me? God, thanks for this morning. Um, it's good to be back in your house here at Cornerstone with family. Um, yeah, thanks for being our father. Thanks for being a father that speaks to us. Thanks for being a father that is not absent from our life, that you are here, that you are present. God, we ask that uh, you would give us ears to hear today, a heart to receive the word that you have, God. That you would help our minds and our hearts and our spirits um, take in all that you have for us. That we would give Rob and your word our attention. And if you would remove any distractions, God, and uh, mature us in all things as we grow as a body, as we grow into you. It's a good thing to worship in your house today, God. Help us to put our hands to the work that you have given us. Help us to do this with, um, out of a spirit of sonship, not out of a spirit where we walk around like orphans. We trust in your blood. We trust that all things are made possible through Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection. And we thank you for that. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, Would everybody stand as I read the word today? Thanks. So reminder, we've been in James 2 the past couple weeks, and we're going to continue. James 2, 1 through 13. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes, and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, do not, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who loved him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point He has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The word of the Lord. So Tony Campolo, sociologist, Baptist minister, he flies to Hawaii to do some ministry, and he can't sleep because of the time change in the jet lag. And so 3 o'clock in the morning, he winds up in some all-night diner, Harry's Diner, and 
sits on a stool, orders a cup of coffee and a donut, and in walks this boisterous group of women. Turns out to be a group of prostitutes, and it's a true story according to Tony Campolo. And so he's sitting there eating his donut and drinking his coffee, and these women are chattering, and one of the women says, you know, tomorrow's my birthday, I'll be 29 years old. And the other women say, well, who cares? What do you want? You want a birthday cake? You want a party? And the other girl says, what do you have to be? That girl, Agnes, says, what do you got to be so mean for? I'm just saying this. My brother, I don't want anything from you. And they walk out as fast as they came in. Tony Campolo turns to Harry across the counter, and he says, do they come in here all the time? Oh, yeah, every night, like clockwork, 3 in the morning. Harry's wife says, Agnes is a nice girl. She's nice to everybody, but nobody's nice to her. And Campolo gets this idea. Maybe you heard the story. He says, hey, I got an idea. Let's throw a birthday party for Agnes tomorrow. I'll be here. She comes in 3 in the morning every night. I'll be here too. I'll buy the streamers and the decorations, and you get your wife to bake a cake, and we'll get the word out on the street to the pimps and prostitutes and all the people that Agnes knows. And so they say, hey, good idea. (laughs) Crazy, you want to throw a birthday party for Agnes the prostitute. And so they do that. Next night, Campolo's there, the place is decorated, looks beautiful, and sure enough, like clockwork, it's filled with prostitutes and pimps and drug users and drug abusers and drug sellers and all that stuff, and it's a crazy place, you know, and who would have thought? And Campolo says, in they walk as usual, and you know, Agnes has no idea what's coming, the place is decorated, and they yell out, happy birthday, Agnes, and her knees buckle, and she's thrown back, completely surprised, tears come to her eyes. And then they bring out a cake. And when they bring out the cake, they say, you know, blow out the candles, Agnes, blow out the candles. And she stares at the cake like it's a holy grail. She doesn't want to touch it. She doesn't want to cut it. Hand her a knife. Cut the cake. She looks at the cake. She says, you know, my mom lives a half a block away. Could I just run the cake over and let my mom see it? She's never seen anything like this. They say, well, it's your cake. And so out she goes, out the door. (laughs) Campolo says, I'm sitting there at this stool with all these pimps and drug dealers and prostitutes, and I didn't quite know what to do. It was dead silent. And he said, I, I guess I, out of awkwardness, stood up and says, let's say a prayer for Agnes. And he says, I got up and I prayed. And I prayed that Agnes would know the love of Christ, the love that doesn't use you but just genu- genuinely wants to love you. And I prayed that she would understand Christ and that the people in this whole room this whole restaurant would understand Christ and when he got done praying Harry the owner of the all-night diner turned to him and says you didn't tell me you were a preacher what kind of church do you belong to Campolo says I belong to the kind of a church that throws birthday parties for prostitutes at three in the morning and Harry the all-night diner owner fancy dirty greasy grill guy says no you don't No, you don't, because there ain't no church like that. Because if there was, I'd join it. Hmm. There ain't no church like that. James chapter 2, the passage that was read earlier, is calling us to be a church like that. It's calling us to walk the third highway, treating others as Christ would have it. James chapter 2 is all about a third way, a third highway, a third pathway. It's a challenge to you and I to be that kind of a church. That's not easy to do. As a matter of fact, I'm going to lay out a blueprint for you today, and we'll go go as far as we can and get as far as we'd like. But I'd like to suggest to you that I can't live this blueprint any more than you could. I need help. I need real help. Because it's just a blueprint. It's a good blueprint. 
But it's a blueprint of walking the third way. There's three ways to relate to others, the way of the seen, the way of the soul, and the way of the seal. And all three ways are right there for you in James chapter 2. And if you're taking notes and you look at the chapter and you go home and you study it, you're going to see the chapter breaks into three panels just like that. The way of the seen, the way of the soul, and the way of the seal. And I'd like to explain this for you this morning. And, you know, I'm not really keen on preaching. I'm a professor of marriage and family therapy, and I have students in my classrooms all the time, and I interact with them, and they ask, raise questions and ask their, raise their hand and ask questions and disagree with me and get up and go out and come back in and find funny stories about penguins. And so feel free to interrupt me and say, I disagree, or what do you mean by that? Or go back a slide, or you're going too fast, or would you like us to order pizzas, or something that makes this easier to deal with. But if we study this passage together, we're going to see these three ways really do call us to relate to one another, to relate to one another and to be the kind of a church that stands out. There are three ways. They're not easy. Verses 1 to 4 is the way of the scene. The way of the scene. If you study this passage, James 1 to 2, 1 to 4, and you look at everything that is outlined there in blue, or you got a highlighter and you highlighted your Bible, and you highlighted it in blue or in yellow or whatever your favorite color is, and you looked at that first set of verses, James 4, two, one to four, and you study everything that's there in blue, something becomes very clear. James was very obviously doing something with his thinking, with the flow of the passage. And everything in blue right there has to do with the world of the scene, the body. A person comes in and they have gold rings and you look at their face. We'll look at some of this as we go further. And they walk in on their legs and they have bright clothes. The Greek word for clothes is lampron and it's the word for lamps. They walk in and they look like lamps. Glowing people. And you don't just look at them. That's the word blepo. I looked at the rich man that comes in. But you epi blepo. Epi blepo means to stare like, whoa, now that's one hot item over there. And you're not just looking, you're really fixated on the person and you say to them, that's your mouth, sit here at my feet. In other words, the first panel is relating to people on the basis of what you see. The physical, the body, the stuff that's out there. It's the thing that hits you right away. And the first panel is very sensate and it's the way of the scene. It's really the way of the child because that's the way children relate. They measure and assess and they value things based on their eyes, on what they see, on the things that assault you in terms of the shallow superficial point. And what James is saying when we do this, when we relate to one another like this, the way of the scene, we're no better than children. And this is happening to us all the time. And we're constantly doing this to one another. We're handing out verdicts and values, and we miss virtue and valor. And we hand out verdicts on one another and values. You're good because of the way you're dressed. Your theology's fine. Your morality's fine. And we're handing this stuff out, and we're like children, a collection of five-year-olds. So Jean Piaget, Jean Piaget, a name you haven't heard since you were in high school or college, and bringing back memories, and that's fine. Memories are good. Remember the time, your first kiss and your first car, and Jean Piaget, they kind of all go together. He studies small children. And he says, you know, kids go through stages, 
sensory, motor, everything is what you could touch in the senses and the motors, and then they go through concrete and formal and abstract and all these stages. And at one stage, you take a kit and you put a liquid in two equal containers, equal amount of liquid, and you say, how much is in here? And they say, it's the same. Then you take a long, tall container, and you take one right in front of their eyes, and you pour it in the tall container. You say, now how much is, which, which has more? And the kid says, the tall container. And you say, well, how could that be? How could that be? I mean, you just saw they were in the same container. Yeah, but this one's bigger. Well, how did it get more? I don't know. The container changed it. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, what do you mean it changed it? Well, the container must have magic. When we do this and we relate to one another on the basis of the scene, we hand out verdicts and values to one another. Your theology looks good. Your morality seems okay. No tattoos. Your hair's not too long. You're dressed right. You get an A+. And we make these conclusions, not because I saw your heart, not because I got to know you, not because I had a relationship with you, not because I went deep into the being that is called you, but because you smell good and you got great hair and you look all right to me. And we're like Samson who says to his father about a woman, get her for me as a wife. Why? She looks good to me. That's like eating a canary because you like the way it sings. That's what we do all the time. We're spiritual children, and we live on the level of the scene. Why is this a problem? Because labels are fables. That's why labels are liars. Labels are limiters. Labels are losers. And when we label one another, that's exactly what we do and become. We lose. We lose. We lose all the time. You lose me, and I lose you when we relate on the level of the scene. Why is this true? Because you cannot capture the image of God with a label. You can't capture infinity in a label. You can't capture the greatness of persons by the simpleness of labels. And you are the image of God, and I'm the image of God. And how do you put a label on image of God? How do you put a label on infinity? Eyes are lies and labels are fables. When you measure me by the scene, you miss me. When I measure you by the scene, the way of the scene, I miss you too. And we all become Rachel Delavoriuses, right? Just like the song. We all become prostitutes at three in the morning. We miss the greatness. The way of the scene is rampant in the church. It's rampant in my heart. It's rampant in our culture. We never really meet. So Heather's gorilla. Heather's gorilla. Who's Heather? Heather is a 30-year-old, amazing, beautiful, you have to meet her young woman. Happens to be my daughter. (laughs) Lives out in Jersey City. And when Heather was nine years old, my wife and I took her to the circus in Reading, right? And we're in the circus, and we're having a good time, and we're kind of maybe back over here in the stages up there. And out walks this character in a gorilla costume. Now, everybody but a nine-year-old knows that it's a man in a gorilla costume, but the nine-year-old doesn't know it. And so Heather's fine as long as that gorilla's way up in front, and she's sitting with Dad and Mom, you know, and she thinks it's very entertaining, But then the guy in the gorilla costume does something that nobody expected. He comes into the audience. And when he comes into the audience, he's playing with people and he's ruffling their hair and he's pinching them and doing the crazy things that he does. But Heather doesn't think it's crazy. She is scared to death. And she's sitting with me back over in the corner and she's getting more and more agitated and upset and nervous and excited and bothered. And I'm turning to her and I'm saying, Heather, it's a man. It's a man. 
And I'm saying this to her, and it's a man. I'm in her ear. It's a man. There's a man in there. And I'm getting aggravated because it's like, you believe what you see, you don't believe your father. <laughs> it's like, ah. I thought there's a man in there. It's a man. It's only a man. And she's getting more and more agitated and upset to the point where I am certain, full-blown panic attack. I'm thinking to my two things. Number one, you really traumatized this girl by bringing her to the circus. You're going to pay for years of therapy. And number two, I'm going to have to pick her up and carry her out because nothing is getting through. All the reasoning in the world is not getting through. She lived on the basis of the scene. She's operating at such a high level of anxiety, nothing worked, just what she saw. And uh, as I'm ready to pick her up and tick her out, and I'm angry, I'm frustrated. It's like, it's just a man, you know? Well, at any rate, this character in the front pops off his gorilla head, and out comes this human head, and Heather freezes. She just freezes, stares, and bursts out laughing. <laughs> Uh, needless to say, I wasn't laughing. I was doing a little swearing. But the first pathway is wrong because if we're images of God, the way of the scene, if we're images of God, you cannot capture infinity in a label. Infinite beings require infinite labels. So if you're going to label me, if you're going to label the person next to you, you're going to need infinite labels because they're infinite beings. That's the way of the scene. Beware of the lies of the eyes. He's a pervert. She's a pornographer. You're ADD. You must be bipolar. You must be whatever label you want to put. Be careful of the labels you put on yourself. Really dangerous. Rather than you are an image of God. You can't love a label. You only love people. You can't know a label. When you label me, you lose me. You lose us. And the way of the scene, James 2, 1 to 4, is all about labels. Labels are for cans, not people. What does that mean? If you're sure you're right, I'm sure we're lost. If you're sure you're right, I got you. I figured you out. You're ADD. You're a pervert. You're depressed. You're a liberal. Whatever label. You're gay. Whatever label you want to put. And you're sure you're right. I'm sure we're lost. Because we're not relating anymore. I tell the students at the school where I teach, you know, don't diagnose people. No one was ever cured by a diagnosis. We're cured by getting to know one another and understand one another. When you diagnose somebody, you relate to the diagnosis, not to the person. You're borderline, aren't you? Yeah, that's what they said. Oh, you're bipolar, aren't you? Oh, you're ADD. No, you're an infinite being of infinite worth. Put all that stuff aside. It's the way of the scene. It's the way of children. Because you see, people don't like that. That's one of the reasons people are afraid of psychologists, therapists, people like that. They're afraid that if you get to know me, you'll put a handle on me and you'll figure me out. There's no handle for me. There's no handle for an infinite being. As soon as you think you got me packaged up in a label, you lose me and you lose us. James 1 to, 2, 1 to 4 is really all about binaries. In, out, good, bad, up, down, rich, poor, saved, lost. It's about binaries. We look at people and we slot them into one of two categories. You're the rich person. You're rich. You're crusos dactulios, means gold fingers, and you're dressed in lampron, bright clothes, and we don't just look blepo, we stare epi blepo. Feast your eyes on him. Fine specimen of Christianity. A golden saint. A trophy Christian. And we do this with people. 
pastors, missionaries, certain individuals. We think they're amazing. Stop doing that to people. There are no trophies in the church. We're all trophies. And we need to realize that. We tell them, sit here beautifully. Kalos is the Greek word beautiful. It means resplendently. You come up here, sit here. Be a nice little trophy so we show you off to the people who are watching. That's one of the things we do with people. We turn them into trophies. We turn them into lamps. The lamps. Lampron clothing. They're bright and shiny. James talks about that. He says, don't do that. Don't do that. That's risky. We should be no trophy zones. The other alternative is we turn them into lumps. Uh, You, come over here. Be a trophy. Kalos means beautiful. Everybody could show off. We could see you. And you over there, you sit at my feet. Hmm. That's servant rhetoric. You're a lamp. You're a lump. We do that with people quite often. The poor, pitokos is the Greek word for poor. Pitokos means to crouch, to be street people. There were two Greek words for poor. Penes meant meant to be a workman. You don't have much, but you got enough. But the really deep word you don't want to be is what's referred to as pitokos. It means to crouch because you're afraid you're going to get beat. And James says we do that with people. We either put them up and they're the rich their trophies, their lamps, their lamps, their people you look up to, or we put them down as lumps, and we have these kinds of people in the church. And we put ourselves in those categories. I'm doing all right. I'm theological. I'm moral. I didn't sleep with my neighbor's wife. I didn't cheat. I'm all right. I'm a lamp. Or I'm a lump. I'll never get it together. When you put people up or you put people down, you know what happens? You never let people in. You never really get to know them. When that happens, we die. Michal Foucault, Michal Foucault was a homosexual. He's dead. He was one of the leading thinkers behind the postmodern movement. He was really worried about the way culture was going. He's a psychologist. He was a philosopher, brilliant guy. He studied prisons, and he recognized that in the prison system, the one thing everyone wanted was what's called a panopticon. A panopticon, there's a picture of it up there. It's a place that the guard could stand and see everybody. And Michal Foucault says, you know what? Our whole culture is becoming a prison because we're always living under this phrase, he calls it the gaze. The evaluative gaze. Somebody's always staring at me and evaluating and handing out values and verdicts. And he said, that'll kill you. That's twisted because you can't love a lamp or a lump. You only love persons. It's not the way of Jesus Luke chapter 7, a pole dancer, a lap dancer, a street walker comes in and she washes Jesus' feet with tears, right? And wipes his feet with her hair. And Simon the Pharisee says in himself, if this Jesus were a real prophet, he'd know what she is and he wouldn't let her do this. In other words, if he were a real prophet, he'd put a label on her and put her aside. But because he's a real prophet, he sees beyond the scene and he sees into the heart. That's the way the scene Labels are fables. Labels are liars. The eyes are the lies, and lies are the eyes are the end of the relationship. And so James chapter 1, verses 2, two verses 1 to 4 is all about the way of the scene. Train yourself to ask two pivotal questions when you look at other people. I try to do this. I don't always do this. I fail miserably. I, I was thinking about this sermon, and I thought, I don't really want to go there today. I don't want to talk about this stuff. This is just something I'm not very good at myself. I do this all the time. So I came in here before 
anybody was here and I was listening to the worship team and they were playing and I was being healed and I thought, wow, okay, I think I could do this with the one caveat that everybody knows I don't live it, but I want to. That's the way of the scene. Ask two pivotal questions. Number one, what's the meaning of what seems to be? And number two, what really is? What's the meaning of what seems to be? He seems to be a loud, rugged, rough, unkind individual. He seems to be really rammy. What's really there, though? I try to get beyond the scene into the unseen. If you walk the way of the scene, in time you stop looking for the person and you just relate to the label. So James 2, 1 to 4 is about the way of the scene, right? Then there's the way of the soul. If you go a little further in the second panel, James 2, 5 to 7, you're going to get into the soul. Now, if the first panel is the way of the scene, it's the way of the child, it's the way children relate. Remember Jean Piaget and your first kiss and your first chef and all that stuff? Okay, that's the way of the scene. And now we're in the way of the soul. What do you see in this first right here? Right, right, just take a look at it. Yell out. How is this different than the first panel we looked at with the gold rings and the lampron clothes and the sit at my feet and trophies and lamps and lumps? How is this different? Just yell it out. What do you see, Tanya? What do you see? Chose them, right? Okay. What else? What's in here? Three key words. Well, two key words and one inference. The way of the scene, the verse we just saw, it's all about the body. Rings and clothes, you got it, that's got it, okay, good. Right here, now I'm going to hit this button. I hope it works. You're going to see three words, two words and an inference. I think I'm fair to say the third word is really there. There they are. They're rich in faith. They're going to inherit the kingdom. That's their hope, and they love him. Faith, hope, and love. Guess what? We're not in the realm of the scene where children live, where we live. We're in the realm of the Father who looks for faith, hope, and love. We shifted. So verses 1 to 3 are about the body and the scene and gold fingers and sit here at my clothes and lamp-like clothes and all that stuff. And now we're in the way of the soul. Now we find ourselves in a domain that God lives in. Do you get it? Two ways to relate. The way of the scene or the child, the scene, the senses, the body, the shell. We hand out verdicts and values the way of the Father, the substance, the spirit. And James 2 is starting to flesh out his panels. The way of the soul is very different. The way of the scene you look on, the way of the soul you look in. You look into people, look into their soul, you look into their heart. Very few people are capable of doing this. Jesus did this all the time. Whoever looked for her soul, huh? Marilyn Monroe, one of the most famous faces of all. Nobody was looking at her soul. Tragic life, Norma Jean Mortensen, never knew her father. Her earliest memory of her mother? You know what her earliest memory of her mother was? Smothering her with a pillow in her crib. Wow. Tragic story, tragic life. She goes from foster care to foster care, orphanage to orphanage. She has a half-sister. She only sees the half-sister six times in her whole life. Heartbreaking story. This woman was just tragic in her life. She was abused repeatedly. She goes to a foster home where Mr. Kimmel lures her in, eight-year-old girl lures her in and has his way with her, and then he throws some money in her face and says, here, 
Go buy yourself some ice cream to forget about it. She threw the money at him again. She ran out and she told the foster mother what he did to her. And the foster mother, instead of embracing her and loving her, says, you know, he's my star boarder. Shame on you. And she cried herself to sleep. She took frequent baths, tried to shower all the time, cleansing herself. Never felt like she was known or loved. She said she just wanted a mom to comb her hair and tell her she was beautiful. (laughs) Interesting. Everybody saw the scene. Let's look at the soul. She was sexually abused and raped at 11 years old, and when she was 16, she decided the way out of the mess was by getting married, and so she marries a guy named Jimmy Doherty who works at a munitions plant where they make war stuff, you know, bombs, things like that. Uh, Early marriage usually leads to early divorce, and so in four years she's divorced. She finds herself attracted to theater where she could dance and she could be a spectacle the way of the scene, and she's used up in movies and in modeling, and it's her way out of poverty. She marries Joe DiMaggio, a baseball player who abuses her terribly. Leaves the marriage, goes back in, leaves the marriage accordion relationship. It's just just discouraging. 36 years old, she overdoses on benzodiazepines. They find her dead. She said once, I never felt like a person, only a thing. Nobody sold her, they only saw her. But there was a soul in there to see, a deep soul. Here's one quote from her. I encourage you to study her life. She says, wanting to be someone else is a waste of the person you are the way of the soul. Jesus mastered the art of seeing souls, not just seeing seen. He walked the way of the soul. He saw faith. They lowered a guy on a pallet through a roof and it says Jesus seeing their faith. He saw faith. He saw hope. He saw a widow cast money into the, poverty, into, into the treasury out of her poverty. Even though she wasn't rich, she had hope. He saw love. Luke chapter 7, a woman anoints him with her, with, uh, with her tears and he says she loved much, her sins are forgiven. Uh, D- Jesus saw faith, hope, and love. There's Heather again, gorilla girl. Huh? Heather's body carries tattoos which she, as a writer, says tells a story. I think they hurt and they're a waste of money, but she thinks they tell a story, and so she got these tattoos, right? About a year ago, I was walking with her in a Target store in New Jersey, Hoboken, New Jersey. And as I'm riding, walking with her up and down this Target store aisle, summer, she's got a shirt on. That's her in her wedding dress, actually. She and I are walking down the aisles of the Target store, and people are staring at her. She's a beautiful girl but they're staring there looking at her tattoos. And I said, Heather, you know, people look at your tattoos. She said, yeah, I know, Dad. She says, it's very interesting to look at the way they look at me. I said, what do you mean? She says, there's two kinds of people that look at me with my tattoos. She said, one group looks at me and they sneer. They push their nose up. They reject me. Just ipso facto, just a matter of course. She says, that says more about them than it does about me. And then she said, some people look at my tattoos and they say, what is, wow, what's that tattoo? And there's a story. What is the story? And she says, those people, they go beyond the scene and they look into my heart. I said, wow, Heather, that's so heartbreaking. And people would look at you and judge you because of ink on your body. 
She says, yeah, that's the way. I, she says, Dad, I think that's the way people of color must feel. They're judged because of their color. I said, wow, that's amazing. If people knew her, they'd look past all that stuff and they'd see her soul, how beautiful it is. That's what James wants us to do, the way of the scene, the way of the soul. There's a third way. I don't know if you'll spot it, 8 to 13. We're almost done, maybe 10 minutes. We'll get out of here. 8 to 13, the way of the seal, the way of the seal. What do you see when you read these Bible these verses right here? What jumps out? One word comes out over and over and over again. What do you see? All, the word all. Law, wow. Right there. Can you see it in brown? Law, beautiful. Verse 1 to 5, the body jumps out. It's the scene. 6 to 7, the spirit jumps out. Faith, hope, and love. 8 to 13, covenant jumps out. This is law language. It's covenant rhetoric. I'm very impressed that you guys saw that. That's really wonderful to know. Law, 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 whole law, lawbreaker, law that gives freedom. The way of the scene is relating to people by what you see, the body, the sensual, the shallow, the way the soul is getting into their heart, but the way of the seal is covenant. It's how father looks and it's how family members look. It's the way of the seal. The way of the seal is I relate to you as a co-covenanter, somebody who's a co-heir with me in a larger covenant, and that shapes and informs the way I see you. You and I are co-owners of the kingdom. That must inform how I treat you. And so covenant language comes in. Where do I put you? What box do you put me in? How do we posture toward one another? We're co-inheritors of the kingdom. And if that's true, what I see doesn't matter. The soul matters, and mercy triumphs over judgment. This is a very interesting way for James to end. What does he mean? There's a coded message. That's a coder-decoder ring that I had when I was a kid. It's like, wow, if only I had that thing. Now Greek and Hebrew would be a snap, right? Okay, the Jews would have known that there's a coded message in this verse right there. It's speaking in terms a Jewish ear would hear. And the coded message is very beautiful. If you look at it in Greek, mercy, helios, triumphs, katao, kao, kaomai, over judgment. What did he really mean? Mercy is the Greek word for the Greek word helios. It's the Greek word for an Old Testament word, kesed. Kesed is pure covenantal mercy, tenderness. It triumphs. Kata kao kaomai. This is a very interesting word. Mercy triumphs. Kata is down and kao kaomai literally means to be a loud mouth. Mercy is doing something loud mouthish to the judgment. What's that all about? Well, the Jews had this tendency to tell stories. They called them midrash. And they liked to tell stories of the attributes of God talking to one another. So they'd make up these stories. Mercy and judgment were walking down the street and they came across Adam and judgment said, he's a rebel, kill him. And mercy, chesed said, oh, he's a son, forgive him. And they got into a battle with one another. And the Jews would spin tales like this. They called it midrashim. And because we're part of a covenant and these two forces, mercy and judgment, are fighting and talking, which one wins? Mercy wins, and it not just only wins, it katao kao kaomais, meaning it thumbs its nose at judgment. Mercy spits in the face of judgment. 
And if that's true, and if we're part of the covenant, judgment has no place among us. Mercy does. Chesed, covenantal mercy and kindness. In the ancient world, the kings would issue two types of covenants. One was called covenant of an obligation. I do this, you do this, I'll do that, you do this. And then there was covenant of a grant. Covenant of a grant was a gift that a king would give to somebody he liked. And when God gets a hold of Abraham, he gives him a covenant of a grant. And the characteristic term of a covenant of a grant was one word, and the word is friend. So Abraham is the friend of God. And Moses talks to God face to face like a man talks to his friend. And Jesus says, I no longer call you my servants because the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I call you my friends because I want you to know everything. The way of the scene, you're not a friend. You're somebody I label. You're somebody I give a value or a verdict to. The way of the soul, hmm, now I'm starting to see your faith, hope, and love. The way of the seal, your friend. And judgment has no place. Mercy does. And God calls us to make some serious challenges and changes in the way we see one another. James 2. I'm reading through the story of Joseph in the Old Testament, 37, Genesis 37 to 50. And anybody who reads the story of Joseph right off the bat, Genesis 37, starts to see the danger of making conclusions. Joseph has these dreams. He's in his many-colored coat, and he dreams a sheaf comes up out of the ground. It's something you eat. You get wheat from it, and everybody bows to the sheaf of wheat. And his brothers hate him, and they condemn him, and they're going to kill him and send him off to the gypsies. And his father, on the other hand, he's not happy, but he's tentative, and he's thinking maybe something's going on here. And the narrative has these turns and challenges and switchbacks and loops, and it's kind of like the day I got on my motorcycle two years ago, and it was fall, and I was tired of grading papers. I think grading papers is what people do in hell. I think God says, you're going to grade papers for eternity, essays no less. So I needed a break and I got on my motorcycle and I was dressed warm and I filled up the tank and I'm driving down a road and I looked off to my left and I saw a little highway and I thought, hmm, never been down there before. Wonder where that goes. And I got on this road And after about five minutes, I thought, oh my goodness, I'm on the road to Armageddon. It's incredible. The road twists and turns. It's called Gold Mine Road. And the road turns and loops and loops and turns and switchbacks and ups and downs and five miles an hour. And I thought, oh man, alive, I'm going to die on this road. I went home and I did a Google on Gold Mine Road. 50% of people on Gold Mine Road are never seen again. They find them. (laughs) Archaeologists find them 30 years later. The other 50% are neurotic psychotic or schizophrenic and I thought wow we live on gold mine road Genesis 37 to 50 is gold mine road it's a story of switchbacks and loops and twists and turns and the things you think are certain Joseph is stupid Joseph is a failure get rid of Joseph turn out to be really uncertain and the thing you never imagined could be true Joseph is God's choice is a switchback in a gold mine road it's that way with you and I we live the way of the scene I'm certain he's sick I'm sure she's a failure when you do that you've lost covenant we live the way of the soul Live the way of the seal. 
God has labeled you, selected, elected, perfected an heir toward whom he has mercy and you are father's favorite and you inherit the kingdom and you are mercy worthy, not label worthy and that must inform the way I treat you and the way you treat me. You've already been judged and the verdict's in. The label's already been slapped on your forehead and the judgment is you're not, you're not guilty. We were already judged and we're part of a covenant. And this means I can size you up and I can be tempted to put you up or I could put you down the lamps and the lumps or I could put you and let you in. And that's where God wants us to go. The way of the seen, the way of the soul, the way of the seal, three ways. And this is what God is looking for from us. James chapter 2, it's a beautiful chapter. God wants us to try to live it out. We'll fail. We won't do well with it. But that's the call. That's the challenge. And it's a challenge for us to always doubt our tendency to label. A woman and her husband were having trouble with their three kids who, because of storms and because of sleep problems, all wound up in the marital bed. And so they decided that they were going to wean themselves of these kids that climbed into their bed with them. And they did, and they got rid of one kid and got him out of the bed. It's never a good idea to do that. But anyway, get, don't put kids in the marital bed. And then they got rid of another kid, and they were having a hard time getting rid of the third kid. And he'd sleep in between mom and dad, and it was just a disaster, and they tried and tried and tried. And then dad went on a business trip. And mom figured, now I'm going to strike while the iron is hot. You're getting out of the bed. And so she grappled, and a week went by, and she finally got the kid out of the bed. <laughs> the whole gang goes to the airport to pick up the dad when he returns from his business trip. And, of course, people are waiting at the gate for their loved ones to come out on the concourse. And mom's there with her three kids, and dad's coming down the concourse. And because they finally got the kid out of the marital bed, and it was really a good moment, and the kid was happy, I'm sleeping in my own bed. The kid sees daddy coming down the concourse, all these people, and says, Daddy, daddy, guess what? Mommy didn't sleep with anyone when you were away. (laughs) The mother was horrified and was hoping, of course, everybody was looking to find out who's mommy. (laughs) The way of the scene... The way of the soul, the way of the seal. James 2 will reverberate in your head and ask, which one are you going to use to relate to me? Let's pray. Help us, God, to treat one another as friends in covenant as you do toward us. Amen.